Hello and welcome to the 10th episode of The Crit. 10 episodes. It's a cause for celebration. It's probably a set anniversary. I don't know which anniversary. One of the rubbish materials probably, because it's not that long, like tin or balsa wood or Pewter. plywood. I thought you could say pubes. <laughs> not a very dignified material. <laughs> Right. Um, well, who are you anyway? Uh, I am Ollie Stratford. I'm one of your hosts. And who the hell are you? <laughs> I'm Christina Rapatsky. I'm your other host. Well, that's all of our ducks in an order. So sh- <laughs> shall, <laughs> shall, shall we, we proceed? <laughs> so it's uh, awards season, or not quite. All the awards have been uh, delayed for... Um, the usual pandemic reasons, so we're getting the Oscars in the spring rather than the winter. A slightly different ceremony this year. Uh, normally they hold it in a huge auditorium, but this year, as a result of social distancing, they had to hold it in Los Angeles Art Deco Union Station with a set designed by architect and designer David Rockwell. Did you watch the ceremony? No, no one watches the ceremony. <laughs> That's why their ratings are plummeting. It's the most boring night of the year. Did you watch it? No, I watched the highlights and then I looked at pictures of people in beautiful frocks. Yeah. uh, Which is uh, how you're meant to consume the Oscars, I think. Right? I think so, yeah. I have to say, I thought David Rockwell's set was actually quite nice. So he designed it to sort of call back to earlier Oscars and it looks like a kind of art deco bar I suppose sort of small round tables with seatings around there a lot of kind of brass and uh, blue fabric draping down so I don't know it looks like a bit like a cabaret bar or something I think Rockwell was looking to those early Oscar ceremonies in the, well, in the 40s, I guess, uh, which would have been held in the hotels, some of the grand hotels of LA. Uh, So we're much more intimate affairs. I don't know. I found myself looking at pictures of the building itself. I've never been to LA and so I've never been to the main train station, but what an extraordinary building. It's a kind of mashup in itself of uh, Art Deco styles and kind of Californian mission and a colonial Spanish style. It's kind of incredible. It's in the ticket hall of the train station. The way that space was transformed, I thought, was uh, extraordinary. You wouldn't think it looking at the pictures, but I suppose it was chosen because that room has a very high ceiling compared to your regular sort of convention centres. And there was a possibility to distance people more than you would perhaps uh, at the regular event at the Dolby Theatre. I think award ceremonies are in kind of a weird moment, though, because I think it's un- it's known that all of the award ceremonies, not just the Oscars, the Golden Globes, have diminishing audiences every year. Fewer people are tuning in to watch them. And I think because they are very bloated, they are very self-congratulatory, and they've kind of shied away from having... Um, In the past, I think there was more of a comic edge. They would have like a comedian host it, whereas this year's Oscars emphatically didn't. They didn't have a host. And I wonder wonder how much these things have been affected by social media and things like that, because people do just have so much more intimate interactions with celebrities now, in a sense. You have much more of a window into their lives that something like an award ceremony maybe isn't particularly thrilling, because... Like, you see their everyday life. I don't know what you necessarily get out of watching one of those big ceremonies. Yeah, but maybe that is a... It's a kind of last hurrah of Hollywood, almost. This romantic looking back towards its heyday in the in the 40s and 50s. 
But um, yeah, Rockwell is an interesting designer. He's very intimately connected to the entertainment industry, to theatre. He's done the Oscar decor before a couple of times, I believe. It's a form of design that doesn't really get talked about or analysed very much. No, I think that's right. I think set design, which he does a lot of, seems to often get hived off from other areas of architecture. Um, And I mean, I suppose there are good reasons for that because they are separate disciplines with their own constraints. But it's also at points a shame like I think I think maybe he deserves more credit for some of these spaces he creates for theatre and they should be taken more seriously and he's published a lot of books talking about spectacle and theatrical design and how he thinks that you should inform other areas of architecture more but I suppose architecture is so obsessed with permanence isn't it whereas an awful lot of what he does is very much embracing the temporary. Yeah it kind of goes against the grain of a lot of thinking right now about not wasting materials and that sort of thing and what what could be more wasteful than kind of creating a ceremonial stage for one night within a train station I don't know I can think of a lot of more wasteful things but it's sort of it's just the optics of it I guess doesn't sit so well within current architectural discourse perhaps I think it's interesting to look at his space for the Oscars though because it's a space created for a world which has changed a hell of a lot over the course of the pandemic. Like the way in which cinema is released is very, very different. Um, Different studios behind it, the rise of streaming services like Netflix becoming major players in that Mm. industry. And just the way we sort of access cinema is so different. And I guess the Oscars traditionally has been that stalwart of old Hollywood like you say it's celebrities in gorgeous frocks walking down the aisle to head into this huge hall and all clap one another and maybe that just doesn't quite ring true anymore so his effort to create something which looks slightly more intimate I think is quite an interesting one even if maybe the ceremony itself didn't work very well So keeping it in the Americas, the next story is from the world of furniture design and is pretty big news, actually. Uh, This was the announcement that Herman Miller, one of the giants of 20th and 21st century uh, furniture design, is buying Knoll, the the other American giant of furniture design, (laughs) in a 1.8 billion cash and stock deal. Herman Noller. Norman Herman. Herman Noller. (laughs) Norman Miller. <laughs> Norman Miller. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's they're saying it's a merger, but it's Her- Herman Miller that's bought Knoll, basically, isn't it? Yeah, effectively. It means Herman Miller stakeholders are going to own 78% of the combined company, Knoll shareholders approximately 22%. So it, it's not a straight buyout, but I, th- I think you can more or less read it that way. Both companies, like you say, are incredibly important in the development, particularly of the look of the modern office in the post-war United States, but also in the rest of the world, really, was a a style that was exported. I think this is interesting in relation to other big mergers and buy-ups that we've seen in the last, would you say, decade? Decade and a bit? It feels like the 21st century has really brought with it these enormous consolidations of brands that were previously either family owned or certainly had their own very rich uh, independent histories. In Europe, for instance, there's Design Holding, which has in the last few years bought Floss, the lighting company, and Louis Paulson. 
uh, the Danish company, B&B Italia, another big Italian furniture company. Yeah, I think that you've seen that very clearly in the Italian design world, which was so much marked by this model of the family-run business, those being pulled together to form these huge companies. But I guess something which is interesting with Noll and Herman Miller, I mean, Noll was a family-owned business originally, but they, they've been corporate giants for quite a long time. So to see two of those coming together is is perhaps slightly surprising. They they contain a huge number of the classic 20th century designs. I mean, all the Eames stuff, Marcel Breuer, Mies van der Rohe and Lily Reich. For all of those designs to be in one stable now is, is quite a big change. How is Babby formed? Yeah, how girl get pregnant? <laughs> it's the question on everyone's lips. I don't think there was a handy platform where you could find the answer to questions such as these. This is the sad news that Yahoo Answers is shutting. After a run of about 16 years, I think it launched in 2005, come May 4th, Yahoo Answers will be no more. Oh, it's been, I think it's already been in read-only mode in the last few days and then, yeah, shuttering, shuttering completely by early May. Now, lots of people are really upset about this uh, and argue that this is an important piece of internet history uh, and an important generator of hilarious memes. And we should say, for those who aren't familiar with Yahoo Answers, it is, it's kind of the dumbest place on the internet. Yeah, it was a place where people could come together and ask questions and receive answers and they could be about anything. So some personal favourites include Susan asking, does Spider have puss puss? <laughs> there was another one where someone asked, do you think humans will ever walk on the sun? Oh, yeah. So it's it's in that kind of terrain and they became massive because they were very, very funny and very, very stupid and everyone would seize on these and go mad for them. Can I give you some of my favourites? Please. Why does my cat vibrate? Doesn't seem normal. Why why was Chaucer such a bad speller? It's very nice. That's a good question. <laughs> anyway, this is people I think are getting the getting the idea. I should say it's also full of really dark and kind of dank stuff. Uh, a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of like virulently um right-wing and anti-semitic stuff. So it's not all fun and games. I think that's also a characteristic of Yahoo Answers is that it's relatively unregulated. I think you can report you can report abuse, but I don't think it's as heavily moderated as, for instance, newer platforms like Quora or even Reddit. Yeah, Reddit does have some moderation. No, I think that's true. And at, it's strange, though, because on the one hand, it's not regulated, but the fact it's closing and closing quite suddenly also shows how dependent the internet is on certain multinational companies. So a lot of these things are of real cultural value, like think <laughs> not always of real cultural value, but you know, a lot of things go on on Twitter and Facebook and Yahoo Answers and things like that, which really matter to people and shape a lot of things for years to come. And then they can just be suddenly taken down at a moment's notice. Uh, so I think some people are trying to archive all of Yahoo Answers at the moment, but it's unclear whether they'll get it all. And that's a very strange thing, that something can be so culturally influential, but can be totally taken away at a moment's notice and just lost. I don't think you really have anything 
equivalent to that almost before digital. Yeah, I think it's also the changing ownership structure of Yahoo in particular. I think they're owned by Verison now. I think we talked about this a little bit with the death of Flash Player a few episodes ago, where you reach a situation either because a company decides, a company that owns a platform decides to shut it down, or when the technology becomes sort of superannuated. There's this shift that takes place where somebody has to decide what happens to the content. And yeah, this group, this group you mentioned, I think is called uh, the Archive Team. They've been, they worked on, I think they archived GeoCities, which was another Yahoo-owned platform, which was very important to like turn of the millennium online culture. And they've, for the last few years, they've already been archiving some of Yahoo Answers, sort of anticipating that this might happen. There's always this also like society needs to decide or are forced into a situation where they decide what to preserve and what to conserve and what's considered valuable. Um, And some would say that, Yahoo Answers is really valuable. I saw a Twitter user uh, compare the shuttering of Yahoo Answers to the burning the burning of the library at Alexandria. <laughs> That's excellent. I mean, there is like there's an element all of, of human knowledge. <laughs> there's an element of ridiculousness, obviously, because so much of it is facile and ridi- and stupid and gross, or as you say, dark. But there is a growing problem here that. Whatever you think of it, it is a form of cultural output. And the fact that more and more of our cultural output is digital makes it dependent upon certain hardwares, basically. And so things are turned off or in other areas, if someone stops manufacturing, say, the piece of equipment you need to access something, it suddenly goes in a way in which you don't get with books, say. Like, fine, a publisher can shut down, but you still have those books. They're still accessible and readable. Whereas with something like this, it's shut down. And then unless someone is able to archive it and preserve it in a different form, it's gone. I should say, if you are a Yahoo Answers contributor, you can, up until June 30th this year, uh, you can go into your uh, settings and into the tab called Your Privacy Dashboard. And then you can request to download all of your posts. uh, So any posted questions and also any posted answers that you've contributed. So our next story for this week is a really sad one. Um, it's the death of Albert Elbaz, the fashion designer formerly of Lanvin and who had recently started a, his own venture, AZ Factory. Uh, he died in Paris uh, this past weekend, age 59, from uh, COVID-19. I think he was tremendously liked within the industry by his clients and everyone who knew him, people who worked with him and people who admired his, his craft. Yeah, it's been interesting how many of the obituaries and tributes that have come in have reflected on what a nice man he was and his generosity. So stories of Mm. Alba sending bouquets of flowers to other designers for their collections, giving bouquets of flowers to everyone in his studio to thank them for their time. And I think people seem to have really rallied to him across the industry for the sort of honesty of him as a man, that kindness to others, but he was very frank about his own insecurities and struggles with his own weight, for instance. He was overweight Mm. and that seemed to have informed a lot of his design decisions. He often said he didn't want women to feel uncomfortable in his clothes or or as if they were strapped in or couldn't Mm. 
behave as they wanted to while wearing them. There's this great quote from him, which is, he's talking about his design process. He says, I asked myself, if I was a woman, what would I want? And his answer is something that is first comfortable, something fun, and something that lets me eat a big piece of cake. <laughs> He's hard not Which to love. Like... <laughs> it's hard not to love this person. <laughs> yeah. And I think also he faced quite a bit of adversity in his career as well. So he trained and then he was selected by Yves Saint Laurent as kind mm. of his heir to take over parts of uh, YSL. And he only lasted in, a pos- in the position for a year before he was forced out when it was taken over by new ownership who installed Tom Ford, which, I mean, that's a real setback to be <laughs> to be picked mm. by Yves Saint Laurent and then to have that dream sort of turn to smoke in your hand must have been crushing. But he really revitalised himself at Lanvin, which is this incredibly old house. And he made it the talk of the town, really. He did He did very, very good work there for over a decade and made that house relevant again. Yeah, his time at Lanvin was, I think, it, that, that was a long stint by fashion industry standards. I think from 2001 to 2015. Yeah, 2015. And then he was quite unceremoniously dismissed from his position as fashion director. I think the owners cited the fact that he didn't quite produce the sort of big hit, you know, it handbags and that sort of thing, but I'm not... Which funds the whole operation. Yeah, and didn't sort of adapt to that very accessories-reliant side of the business. Yeah, and it's interesting because typically when a designer leaves a house... You know, the fashion industry is a real old carousel. You you get off one horse and you're soon on another. But he, he was largely absent from the industry for five years. Um, mm. He did a couple of one-off collaborations but wasn't leading a house. And I think this adds to the sadness of his death that he died just as he had started a new venture, this AZ factory, And he had exciting ideas for it. It was supposed to be a real tonic to some of the ills of the fashion system. Mm, Which he was quite outspoken about. I think uh, the the pressures on on the designers in particular to, you know, churn out collection after collection. And then also increasingly as the 2010s went on this uh, sort of digitization almost or of fashion where you're designing for the screen really and to create a buzz on the screen rather than designing for the sake of the garments themselves az or az factory was going to like you say be an antidote to that uh not do these sort of super buzzy drops and not do seasons either but kind of cater directly to clients and at relatively affordable prices certainly more affordable than than lanvin (laughs) clothes uh, and bags um and uh, i also thought that like the imagery that came out of that venture was also felt really fresh and inclusive it's a real loss to see him go because as you say with az it, it felt more grounded somehow than a lot of things in fashion and that's a sort of perplexing aspect of him for someone who whose work was so picked up by the red carpet and had any number of celebrity clients he he did he seemed to keep more of a sense of himself and stay more rooted than some people you see in in fashion. I suppose that's why people were drawn to him. Part East Germany, part Middle Eastern dictator and part Donald Trump. Do you know what the architecture critic Owen Hopkins is describing there, Ollie? 
Multiform? <laughs> For once, it's not multiform. Oh, oh, that's... Uh... I have to go back and reassess my understanding of what multiform is. I thought that for sure is multiform. <laughs> Colour me surprised. It is um, the Downing Street Media Briefing Room. Oh! Which we mentioned, actually, in our last episode. Yeah, so this was the UK government wanted to start doing um, US-style press briefings, didn't they? With a single spokesperson who'd be telling you what the government was up to. And they sank, was it about... 2.7 million into creating this briefing room that was singularly underwhelming yeah so they looked across the atlantic and seen uh just how how nice it was to have kellyanne conway and sean spicer delivering alternative facts from a a, a media room with lots of flags in it and they uh, commissioned this new um New media room in number nine Downing Street. So this got a lot of attention because I think people were surprised by how little 2.7 million buys you. It has more than a whiff of the Premier Inn about it. Yeah, it, it it looks surprisingly cheap for having cost that much. Although, to be fair, I do think it's a lot of it is like the audio equipment and that sort of thing that would have cost. Yeah, I also think part of it is any room filled with Union Jack flags looks very cheap the uk just does not or historically has not had that relationship with its flag in recent years it's not like the us where it's flown proudly and prominently wherever you go if you see the union flag it, you sort of wince a little bit it, it's never been a big thing to have it around so to suddenly have a room full of union flags feels uh, well, I mean, it feels a bit fascist, but it it also feels a bit cheap and tacky. It gets associated either with right wingers or with like, you know, the Union Jack cushions that you get in like weird catalogue yeah. photos. It's either fash or tat. <laughs> exactly. So somehow the new media room manages to evoke both of those things. So it's sort of in the news again because it's not really going to be used in the way that was intended. Oh, what's happened? Well, the press secretary, Allegra Stratton, uh, who's a former broadcast journalist, very prominent broadcast journalist uh, from the BBC, uh, she's only been in that role for a few months, actually, and now she's been... I think uh, she joined late last year, right? October? Around that time? October, November, something like that. And she was going to do the her briefings from this new space, and it was all uh, very exciting. And uh, we were going to look exactly like uh, like the Trump administration. But then I think uh, Stratton's gotten a different gig in government, so she's going to be the spokesperson for COP twenty six instead, and she's not going to do these briefings. Uh, so the the room's still going to be used, but just not for the purpose that it was intended uh, initially. Do we know what it's going to be used for instead? I think it's still going to be media communications but I think Boris Johnson himself has spoken in there and um, I guess other people but it just won't be this sort of daily thing that I think was the justification to create this new space. It's really strange though how the current UK government seems to keep tripping itself up over interior decoration so alongside this briefing room um, there's a current huge scandal in the UK as to how Boris Johnson funded the renovation of his flat, whether that was done using a gift from political donors. And it's all very messy. And it's 
it's so British and rubbish and small for this government to founder on interior decoration. For like a country which has tried to live up to like that presidential grandeur, it's very funny it's come undone by the drapes. So for our next story, I thought I'd combine two previous ones. So what happens if you combine the Oscars with the Union Jack? Uh, you get the Brit Awards. I've actually realised this setup doesn't work because you'd get the BAFTAs. That's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh well, no, let's no, no, keep no, no, it. No. It's fine. Yes, exactly. You get the Brit Awards. <laughs> I swear we didn't plan this entirely spontaneous exchange. <laughs> <laughs> so the Brit Awards, um, music awards, obviously. And what's quite nice is every year they tend to get a different designer or architect or creative person to create the award for it, the statue. So previously they've had Tracy Emin, Anish Kapoor, Zaha Hadid, David Ajay. And who's uh, done it this year? Well, slightly Mm. more complicated than usual. This is the first time when two designers have done it. Oh, have they like collaborated on like a joint one? That's what you'd think. They've done two awards. So, there is an award designed by Yinka Alori. Oh, yeah. Great designer. Really good. Really like his work. And an award created by Ez Devlin. Also, you know, interesting designer. Has some great work. So, I'm going to read you a quote from them. The idea is that each winner will receive both of the awards. So Yinkers is a very tall sort of figure of a person with some beautiful colours running round the front. And then Ez's is a smaller version of that in silver. I'm looking at it now. And the idea is that when you win, you're encouraged to keep Yinkers' award and give Ez's away. And you're meant to give it away to someone like a family member, a friend, a neighbour, colleague... Anyone who's been important to you. Does it have to be S's that you give away? Or can you keep S's and give Yinkers away? What, like, who's made that rule? Yinkers is bigger. So I think you're oh, meant to okay. keep that. I think it's the little award. As in that's the main one. Yeah, I think that's the main one. And then Ez's is like the sort of doggy bag award. It's a very funny thing because Yinka said the idea came from the experience of lockdown where your neighbour you've lived beside for six years and never say hello to suddenly gave you flowers, foods, acts of kindness. I wanted to capture that. So the idea is you're giving something back. But it's a very strange thought to say... Honestly, you've been so great this year. You've been a real help to me. I really think you deserve a Brit. I'm going to give you a Brit. And also the other side is it just makes me think the UK will literally give nurses Brit awards before they'll authorise a pay rise. Oh dear, yeah. I mean, oh, that's not Yinka Laurie or S. Devlin's fault, but yeah, now you put it like that. Hmm. No, I'm not I'm not blaming Yinka Alori or Ez Devlin for the state of nursing in this country. That's not my claim. Not yet, anyway. I'll need to look into it more. So, on to our products and projects category. And the first thing we're going to look at is a new chair from the Dutch brand Moy, which is the Hortensia. Uh, now, this is interesting because it's designed by the artist Andres Reisinger, and actually began life as a digital design. Yeah, we've talked about him in the past in, I think, episode six of The Crit. He, he's the designer who sold a collection of furniture, which is mostly virtual for an extraordinary sum of money. And the Hortensia chair is a creation of his and uh, Julia 
Escase from 2018, which started life as a digital concept and was posted on Instagram as a render and went viral. Yeah, the idea was it was billed as an impossible chair. So it's a plump old fellow, quite normal in its form, but then it seems to be made up from thousands upon thousands of petals. So I think the idea was this would just be impossible to mass produce. They actually did make a physical version as a limited edition, but now mm. Moy picking it up and producing it industrially, that's new and a sort of, well, I, I suppose a correction to that original claim that it's impossible. Yeah, so people know a hortensia or a hydrangea plant, the flowers with the with kind of really lush uh, petals. Uh, Moy have found a way to do the impossible <laughs> and uh, they've laser cut 30,000 petals for each chair from fabric i imagine yeah i think so and i think andres is a really exciting practitioner actually i remember when i first saw his digital work i wasn't so sure about it i don't think i fully understood the desire you to... called it digital tumescent i stand by it is digital tumescent um <laughs> but it's really growing on me actually and he said some quite interesting things about designing in this way so he said Designing digitally first and then it later being picked up as a physical product is a key game changer. And he said the current model is based on producing massive quantities of a product, storing it in warehouses and then forcing the demand for it. Reversing the mindset and focusing on the real demand first can help us optimise production. Now, I don't know whether that will play out in the long run, whether this is a great model for the furniture world moving forward, but it's certainly not an impossibility and it's interesting to see someone trying something like that out. Yeah, it's also, I think it's it's being honest about a design process that kind of already exists. I'm sure there's lots of designers who sketch, you know, by hand to develop their ideas for a piece of furniture design, but I think a lot happens with using digital tools anyway and in a sense this is just kind of showing your work really yeah like an architect absolutely would show a rendering and and credit to moy as well i suppose for picking this up and taking it on so their ceo robin beavers he said some quite interesting things to design which is he said that this way of working is a new dialogue between designers and brands. Designers will not wait to be commissioned by brands or abide by their briefings. Instead, they will take the initiative and bring their work out there. Brands will be forced to step up. More power will go to the artists and designers and the world will become a more beautiful place. Now, (laughs) maybe an idealised version of it, but perhaps there's something in what he says. It's a bit difficult to clean, doesn't it? Oh, impossible. A big bloody nightmare. Next up to discuss is Flow X. This is a new stair lift for the mobility specialist Access BDD, which has been designed by Pearson Lloyd. Yeah, and it looks like a piece of furniture design, which is more than you can say about a lot of, we should call it furniture, but it's viewed very often as a equipment or just purely functional equipment uh, for accessibility. Yeah, they're often very plasticky, these things. They look like medical devices. There's no real thought given over to the aesthetic or how it might fit in a home or also comfort, I think, is the other thing. I think it's the culmination of something like a decade of research on the part of Pearson Lloyd, who are very impressive industrial designers 
and uh, it has a lot of technical specifications that make it good to get into and get out of. It sort of swivels in uh, such a way that you don't have to put any pressure on your arms or on your knees and legs to get into it and you don't have to twist your body uh, and that seems quite key I think to this. Also it, it has an automated function and a manual one to bring down this sort of flip down the seat and then stow it away so that you can do that sort of hands-free as well yeah i have to say i'm really pleased they worked on this because it's an unusual project for a studio like theirs to take on largely they do a lot of work in furniture design they've also done a lot of work in the aeronautical industry but i think yeah, the thing with the contract jobs so there's something really lovely i think about the fact that they've worked on this and put it out there and it it certainly made that product more real to me and made me realise about the people's needs in that arena more. Can you say Svensk 10 three times quickly? Svensk 10, Svensk 10, Svensk 10. Good, good. I'm impressed. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> Years of training. <laughs> Swedish pewter, Svensk 10. This is the news that uh, Svensk 10 has put out a reeditioned wallpaper design by Joseph Frank, the great Austrian-born but then Swedish architect and uh, textile designer. Yeah, it's a beautiful design. It's um, it's a floral, basically. So a sort of huge... Classic number- Frank. Classic Frank. Love the natural world. So these sort of swirling colours of flowers. It's called Aurora. <laughs> no, it's not. It's called Aurora. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it's it's one that Frank designed in 1947. Yeah, got some uh, daffodils, some foxgloves, some uh, bluebells. Svensk 10 is a really interesting company. Uh, started out doing just pewter. <laughs> but uh, Joseph Frank, when he... Uh, actually, just before he emigrated to Sweden, was commissioned by uh, Estrid Eriksson, the, the founder of Svensk 10, to create the first bits of furniture design for the company and his pieces and his textile work in particular has become tremendously popular and uh, really has kind of uh, come to epitomize the the look of that brand and they have an archive a huge archive of his work because he worked with them a lot um, in the post-war years as well. Yeah, it's always lovely to see new pieces from that collaboration emerge, be drawn out from the archive. And I think in the same way in which Thanks 10 is an interesting company, uh, Joseph Frank is a really interesting architect because he's he's a modernist architect before he emigrated from um, Austria to, to Sweden. He was working on modernist housing estates. And I think he's quite a refreshing person to look at in a sense because... He's a reminder that modernist wasn't just one thing. It wasn't just one aesthetic and one approach. So his love of sort of nature and warmth and these floral patterns is very much a part of his modernist architecture. And that's worlds away from the sort of machine for living in of Le Corbusier, for instance. Have you done your big shop, your big weekly supermarket shop yet this week? No, and actually I've been growing a bit disillusioned with some of the supermarkets around me. I don't suppose you could recommend a new one. There's a place in uh, West London. No, that's that's too far away. Well, you might want to make the trip. No. <laughs> that That's insane to go that far. For a big shop, do you have any idea how heavy the shopping would be coming back? Madness. Well, I, d- I don't know what to do for you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just end this segment here, I suppose.
No, come on, tell me what's this what's this West London supermarket? This is supermarket. That's what it's called. It's at the Design Museum. It's in the gift shop. And uh, it's a very clever thing whereby the Design Museum has gotten around the quite controversial decision that the UK government has made in their roadmap out of the COVID restrictions to let non-essential retail open before museums. Right, yeah. And there's been a lot of discussion about that as to why the sort of nation's cultural life should remain under lockdown while it's retail life is allowed to flourish again yeah so the design museum has opened its gift shop which they have well they have one in the museum itself but they also have one separate from the main museum building which sits on um south ken high no hold on sorry kensington high street which sits on kensington high street and uh this has been transformed curated by the designer camilla walala into a supermarket where you can buy things like loo roll, uh, high in demand during the first lockdown. Um, you can buy gin. <laughs> That's all you need, really. Loo roll and gin. Um, rice, washing up liquid, porridge oats, pasta sauce, tea, tonic, I guess for your gin. It's like going shopping in the immediate post-war years. <laughs> I know. Something feels like... Suddenly made me think of 1984 and like victory gin. <laughs> you can get your soap, you can get your porridge, your lard for cooking, yeah. <laughs> your loo paper. <laughs> and your margarine. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a really uh, nice idea. It's a very funny idea, I think, because yeah. it does feel a little bit like the Design Museum. Um, playing within the rules, but slightly sticking two fingers up at the government. Yeah, we like to see it. Ten young designers have been selected to create the packaging for each of these sort of everyday items. The reason why I think gin and tonic are being um, sold as everyday items is that the whole thing is sponsored by Bombay Sapphire. So there's a special Bombay Sapphire bottle that's been designed by one of the ten designers. It's very nice packaging. You can go in and do a big shop. And I, you know... I wouldn't be surprised if some of this packaging does become like collectors, like people will be saving the packaging. Nice work, our chums at the Design Museum. Big up. It's too far for me to go shopping there, though. Well, I think that's all the time we have this week, particularly as I'm against the clock if I want to find out how is Babby formed while there's still time to do so. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. As ever, you can get in touch with us on thecrit at designiomagazine.com if you want to email or if you're on Instagram at thecritpodcast and if you're on Twitter at thecritdesign. And if you'd like more audio content from us, why don't you check out Words on Wood, our sister podcast, which we produce in conjunction with AHEC, the American Hardwood Export Council. We have a new episode out looking at illegal logging. See you next time. The Crit is produced by Evie Hall and edited by Christina Rapatsky. Our jingle is by Yuri Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pentagram. <laughs>